you are listening to the Revive Church Podcast. We pray that this sermon blesses you and enhances your walk with God. Feel free to come worship with us on a Sunday morning, or you can learn more about us online at revivechurch.org. How many of you use the Messenger app? Do you have the Messenger app? Do you use it? I have it, but I don't use it very often. And so when I checked my Messenger app about three weeks ago, I found a message on it from August 8, 2016. And I want to read that message to you. It said, Hi Russ, I hope you and Anne are well. I wanted to ask you, are you still doing marriage counseling? A year later. And so I was really concerned because a lot of times when people have an issue... That issue needs to be responded to right away. So this was a friend of Anne's and mine, and we had gone to their wedding. Actually, I had officiated the wedding. It was this beautiful sunset wedding seven years ago uh, at the beautiful beach house where the front yard was the Pacific Ocean. And it was, a, it was just this amazing place. So I immediately, I immediately messaged back our, my apologies and my excuses for being uh, not very tech-savvy and tech-stressed and any excuse I could think of, and asked her to forgive me. She messaged back almost immediately. She said, oh, it's totally, it's totally fine, Rush, she messaged, but I'm still looking, LOL. I had to look up LOL. No, I didn't. This is a pretty common thing. I've done a lot of weddings over the number of years, especially uh, having been a principal of a high school, a number of students. uh, We had a business, Ann and I, where we had a lot of young staff, and we we married a number of them. uh, A number of the young men and women here at Revive, family members, nephews and nieces. So there have been a lot of weddings, and every once in a while, I'll get that, that call. And so I messaged back, I said, how can I help? So obviously, I am a text guy and not a message guy because I drive you crazy with my texts. I realize that. So I texted my friend, and I sent her some resources, some titles of books, and some possible meeting times when we could get together. Within 30 seconds, I received this remarkable response by text. The text read, This is not her cell phone number anymore. But I like the things that you said about marriage counseling. I need prayers for my, prayer and for my marriage restoration. Hmm, a very interesting turn of events. So now here were my questions, my immediate questions. First of all, was this just a random coincidence or was this part of God's plan, his purpose? Was this a, a mere aberration of God's, uh, of, the, of the chain of a life events that he and I were having? Or, or was this a clear example of God's sovereignty? My spirit began to process a number of possibilities. And the first of them was, was this a scam? I don't know if you've ever been scammed before by, on the internet or by the telephone or, or even by text now. It's happening by text. That was my first question. What do they want from me? Is this legitimate? And then, having spent a lot of time ministering in East L.A., South Central, uh, my next question to myself was, could this be dangerous? If I met with this person, could this be a dangerous encounter? That's always a possibility. We have to to be discerning, don't we? 
We have to keep things in mind. There, it, it could be very scary sometimes to be in a situation where you don't know what's going to happen. Another question that I asked myself was, was this a distraction from all of the really special, urgent things going on in my life, my family's life, my church's life? Um, is this just a big distraction that Satan has sent to keep me from putting the time and energy in the things that, that I really need to be focused upon? Or was this God-led? Was this God-led? I concluded very quickly that this, was, this very well could be a part of God's plan and I needed to respond, so I, I texted back. A lot of times we're torn, aren't we? When people come to us, we're torn between the question, is this person wanting to take something from me or is this something, do I have something special to give this person? Well, we're looking in John chapter 4 this morning. And in John 4, I love how the beloved disciple places Jesus at Jacob's ancient well in the noon sun. He's halfway through the shortcut that he's taking through Samaria. And he's on his way to a very urgent ministry in Galilee. We find Jesus in this passage hungry, he's weary, he's tired. His disciples have left him here at the well, and he, they're out looking for food, so they're, they're all hungry. And Jesus is thirsty. And just like that, a Samaritan woman comes out of the blue to the well at high noon to draw some water. As Bruce and Chad have been teaching in their, in their previous sermons, the most remarkable conversation happens along the way for Jesus. Jesus asks a question, or makes a simple comment, give me some water. The woman, was she confused? Was she being sarcastic? She responds, what, you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? There's so much conflict wrapped up in that little question that she asks. Our scripture this morning, it starts with the disciples returning to the well. And you can almost read their minds through this passage. It's like they're saying, what's going on here? Jesus is talking to a Samaritan, to a woman. What's going on? Let's stand together as we read. John chapter 4, verses 31 through 42. John chapter 1, chapter 4, verses 31 through 42. Meanwhile, the disciples, read with me, please. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. 
For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have not entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for this encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We thank you, Father, for all of those encounters that we have, those unplanned encounters, Father, those snapshots in time that we are able to, to just possess, that you give us, that we are able to interact within. We praise you, Father, and we pray, Lord, that as we study this, your word this morning, that, that we will be able to see our role in your kingdom. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So while we're going through these first few verses, verses 31 through 35, I want you to be asking yourself a very personal question. What is strengthening you as a follower of Christ? What is actually strengthening you as you follow Christ? First of all, we have we are wanting to deal with the question, who fed Jesus? Who fed Jesus? Here's this conflict that we see already opening up before us. Jesus is responding to the disciples. They, apparently they have brought food. And, and, they, and Jesus is responding to their question, not from a physical standpoint, but from a spiritual standpoint. And he tells them, I have food that you don't know anything about. I have food that is strengthening me and nurturing me beyond my physical state, beyond my physical condition right now. I am being nurtured. And again, you see them shaking their heads. We've seen this before, haven't we? Remember when we were studying in, in John chapter 3, we were studying about Nicodemus and the struggle that Nicodemus had. He was having this internal conflict about what is Jesus talking about being born again? Does that mean I have to go back into my mom's womb, my mother's womb, and be literally born again? What is Jesus talking about? The Holy Spirit coming uh, and not, it's not being able to see and then being like the wind. And then of, course, then, of course, we have been studying about the Samaritan woman. Jesus is talking to her about water, living water, water that will bring her eternal life. And we see her struggling with what this means and, and what, what it means for her to receive that. And now it's the disciples' turn, isn't it? I have food that strengthens me and nurtures me that, that you're not aware of, that you know nothing about. And so the, Jesus, the question that they would have is, well, 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 what is this Jesus food in verse 34? And Jesus explains, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Here he goes again. Jesus turns everything upside down. It's not about filling ourselves up, filling up a cavity that's empty. It's about 
proceeding forth and doing something. It's about accomplishing something. It's about doing something outside of us, not accomplishing something necessarily that is within us. And so we could even look back at Jesus and what he had just accomplished with the Samaritan woman, the work that he has done. What was it that nurtured him? What was it that was strengthening him spiritually in that particular moment? I would say, and I think we can read, that it was the encounter he had with this woman. He worked with her, removing the obstacles in her life that prevented her from believing, from having faith. In, in verse 9, if you, if you go back and just look in your own scripture, you'll see that immediately she brings up the fact that she's a woman. So gender becomes a conflict between coming to know Jesus Christ personally, become, being able to have faith in him. In verse 9, we also see that she raises the, the issue of her race. She's Samaritan. She's a different race than Jesus. That should be an obstacle. And Jesus responds to that and just pushes right through that. And then in verse 10, we see that there's a silence, and Jesus pushes through that silence and, turn, and goes ahead and answers and responds to her. Then she's saying, you know, you're not dealing with reality, Jesus. That's a conflict. You don't even have a pitcher to dip the water yourself. It's impossible, in verse 11, to draw water from the well without something physical, without something tangible. And then she goes in, in verse 12, talking about about her, her cultural history. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us the the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So she raises up the founding fathers of the Jewish faith as an issue. You're not as great as them, are you? And Jesus responds to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the physical water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so then there's the next issue, the next obstacle to faith in Christ, personal sin. He says, well, go and get your husband. And she says, well, right now I I don't have a husband. And Jesus responds to her, he says, you're right, you, you don't have a husband. You're actually living with someone right now who is not your husband, and you've been married five times. But the point here is she's living with a man that she is not married to. And he brings that to, brings that to light. And then he talks about her circumstances. We don't really know about the five husbands. Was this a Levitical system that she had been in? One brother had died and then the next brother had married her and then the third brother had married her. And then the fourth brother had married her. And then the fifth mar- brother had married her. Or were the circumstances divorce? which under the Mosaic law, which the Samaritans followed very precisely and very specifically, then her husbands all could have said to her, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you three times, and and she would have been divorced. Okay? So he brings up her circumstances as well as her personal sin, and he pushes right through that. He goes right through it, and he goes directly to the confusion that she has. She's, she's confused about who Jesus is. I, I'm discerning that you may be a prophet. No, Jesus is not a prophet. And then she talks about, well, let's talk about theology. In verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. 
She's referring to the divide between their faiths. The Samaritans were very, very strong followers of the Mosaic Code. They, they divided with, with the Jews over the issue of Samuel anointing Saul and then David to the kingship. They didn't believe that that should have happened, and so they stopped right there. They took that, the mountain where they were worshiping, and they stayed there, and they looked at the Jews as, as being people who had gone against God's word, got against God's will. And, and so they had this hope, this theological hope, that they were going through all of the right motions, they were doing all of the right things, and that that was what was going to bring them to a place of wholeness. But Jesus corrects her. He says, no, salvation is from the Jews. And so you were wrong in that area. Salvation is from the Jews. But then he goes on beyond that. And and the theological issue is no longer even a point for him. He says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So she moves from confusion to false hope and a theology that had been standing for for centuries. And then she moves into the incomplete knowledge that she had in verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He he, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She knew there was going to be a Messiah just as the Jews had been proclaiming that they were looking for a Messiah, but she didn't have the complete truth that he was standing right before her. And then Jesus responds, I who speak to you am he. So his disciples, here they are wanting to know who fed him, They're a little dumbfounded by Jesus' response about how he has food that they're not aware of. And then then the question comes up, uh, that comes uh, arises, maybe not spoken, but, but where is this food? In verse 35, where is this food? And Jesus says, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Where is this food? Open your eyes and you'll see it. It's all around you. You are so focused on the reality of food and drink that you don't see the reality that stands right in front of you. You're not able to recognize what God is presenting to you, what he's bringing to you. And he's simply saying, your perspective needs to be not on this this temporary world that you're living in. Your perspective needs to be on the harvest. And the harvest is in front of you. you. It's everywhere that you look. The harvest perspective is what we want. It's what we must have. That's where we put God's work above everything. Jesus explains what his food is. He says, my food is to do the will of God and to accomplish his work. It's doing and accomplishing. It's not filling myself up. It's not feeding myself. It's doing and accomplishing God's work. So the disciples, they were looking for lunch. And Jesus' focus was on God's will in God's work. 
Jesus' focus was on reaching lost people and bringing them to himself. We're often like the disciples, aren't we? Don't we find ourselves focused on lunch? And we're absolutely clueless when God brings a person to us and allows us to speak to someone who does not know Jesus as our Savior. And we're, we're clueless as what to say. We don't know how to talk to them about the spiritual things and, 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 the, and the, uh, the eternal things of life. Last night, Anna and I went to a, a new restaurant that was in the area. And uh, it was a, a nice place. It was a, it was a decent place. It was El Salvadoran food. We were looking forward to tasting something new, trying something new. And uh, what happened was that it took an hour and a half for the food to bring, be brought to us. Actually, it was almost two hours, wasn't it? And so we sat there talking for about two hours, and the restaurant was full. There were lots of people there. The servers were coming over frequently, apologizing and, and wanting to give us more and more chips. We were done with chips after about the first half hour. But again, it would have been so easy just to be focused on dinner, wouldn't it? Rather than the people who were there. After two hours, we finished dinner and, and we were sitting there kind of exhausted waiting for dinner. And the, and the owner and the chef came out to talk to us and she was apologizing and, and saying some very nice things, you know, about us being patient. And again, what could have happened? What if we had just been angry and rude and, and uh, stomped out of the restaurant? But now, what's possible? Because we sat there and waited, and waited our turn, I guess. Actually, everyone was served before us. But, but where will God take this relationship? What can he do? We need to have a harvest perspective. And we need to be involved in doing what God's will is and accomplishing his work. Here's another personal question I would like for you to be asking yourself during the, these next verses, verses 36 through 38. What is your investment in God's harvest fields? What is your investment? In verse 34, Jesus says, God sent me. He sent me to do his will and to do his work. In verse 38, he says, I sent you. I sent you. He's speaking to his disciples. He sent them. He, under his authority, they are to go out and they are to harvest this field. They are to sow seeds and they are to harvest in the fields. He's, they are to go. They are to make disciples. They are to accomplish what God has called them to do. So what is your role? What is our role? We are, all along with Jesus, we are to do and accomplish God's will and his work. Obviously, if we're going to be involved in a harvest of a field, seed needs to be planted first, doesn't it? That's hard work. I don't know if you've ever planted seeds. We just have a tiny little garden out in our backyard. And just getting the seed in and getting it at the right level and, and then making sure it's watered and taken care of so that it grows, it's, a, it's an, an amazing thing. But it has to be planted before it can be harvested. So your role is to plant the seed. And as people come to us, whether it's under some odd or difficult circumstance, we're patiently planting and watering. And then you may do the hard work of planting and watering, and then 
the harvest time comes. It's time to sow. It's time to, it's time to, uh, to, to harvest the, the seed that has been, that has been planted. You, in fact, you may do all the hard work of planting the seed only to have others come and reap the harvest. So we've, I've been on both sides of that, sowing seeds and reaping the harvest. Uh, recently, um, I, I was listening while a friend of mine was sharing uh, with his friend, uh, continuing to planting seeds into his friend. And, and, and it was obvious that it was time to reap, it was hard, time to harvest. He had been planting seeds for about two years, and uh, the, the friend was basically saying, enough seed already, I'm done with the seed. And, and so basically, it didn't seem like we were going to be moving into the harvest mode. And so we simply turned to, to Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. And we began to go through those verses together, the three of us. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whosoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And after we finished going through that passage and through those verses, the friend said, I'm ready. I want to know Jesus now. I want to believe in Jesus now. So I've learned, I've learned the lesson. In time past, I, I, I know that I had spent hours and hours working with a man in our church here in Revive, uh, going, meeting with him at different places, going through all of the obstacles that, that stood between him and having faith in Jesus, uh, reading the scripture that would be applicable in those particular cases. And then one Sunday I arrived and the pastor of the church announced that he had just led this man to Christ. And I thought, What? what? And I heard myself say to myself, what about me? What about what all I had done? And here's the shame of it. After the, after the service, this man who was a new believer came to me and apologized that I had, not been, I had not been recognized. And I had to come to terms very quickly. It's really not all about me, is it? It's really not about what I'm doing, the work that I'm doing. It's about the work that is accomplished in Christ. So what is it that you bring with you? What is your portfolio in this special investment? In verses 36 through 38. Number one, you have to bring the reality of urgency with you. Jesus says, already, in verse 36, he says, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. It's already happening. You're already late. You're already behind. Get with it. Move forward. Stop focusing on lunch, and let's talk about what's really important. All of your needs are going to be provided for. Everything is going to be taken care of. 
Don't get anxious about lunch. Here's the food that's going to sustain you. Here's what's going to keep you going and keep you moving. This is what's going to keep you feeling like you're alive in Christ. Get with it. It's already happening. Don't be left behind. And then in verse 36, Jesus makes it clear, you know, what are we sowing? What is it that we're actually sowing? We're sowing God's word, aren't we? And we're going to see this illustrated even more clearly in just a few moments in the further verses. It is the word of Christ that is being sown, that we're sowing. That's the seed. Romans, again in Romans 10, verses 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in him and believe in your heart that, Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So in your, what are you investing? You're bringing your sense of urgency, your understanding that now is the time. You bring God's word as the seed that is to be sown. Then you bring a spirit of cooperating partnership. Cooperating partnership. Partnership with who? In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, we read, For we have become partners of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We hold fast. We hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We are, first of all, partners in, with Christ in the work that we're doing in his, God's will. It's not a competition, is it? We're not competing with one another. I often, you know, I think some of the, some of the hardship, the heartache of, of a small church is that we find ourselves doing a lot of work planting, a lot of work watering, and then just as someone reaches a level of maturity, uh, they feel the need to go off and, and hear $150,000 sermons and uh, go into their designer children's programs and designer youth programs, and we watch them go as they move into these programs and pews uh, where they sit. Okay? That's a heartache for us, but it's not a competition. We work, and we may do some, be doing some of that very hard work that is necessary, required in the very beginning to see some of the results going on to others. We also bring humility out of verse 37. One sows and another reaps. It really isn't about just us, is it? We do our part, and you do your part. We really do need to get over ourselves. We really do need to be ready to do what is required. And then what else? What else is part of our portfolio, our investment portfolio? Labor, hard work. Verse 38. Verse 38 reads, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Hard work. I see so many people giving up, throwing up their hands, 
because they work really hard and they don't see the, the immediate results or even the long-term results that they, that they had been praying for, they'd been hoping for. One sows and another reaps. We do the work that God puts in our hands. Here's a good attitude for us. I think we could have this attitude. Others have labored planting seed. You have entered into their labor. We're never starting the work, are we? We're never starting it. We're always in the middle of it or we're at, the, at one particular stage of it. Someone has already begun it. If no one else, the Holy Spirit, we know he's already there. He's already beginning the work. We're just joining into his work. We're just joining into the work that, that someone else has already started. None of it is of our own initiation. We need to set aside our pride, and we need to bring our labor. I, I, know, this as a, I know this personally because when I became a believer, when I was seven years old, I became a Christian, and many, many people had already been sowing seed in my life. My parents, my family, my neighbors, my school teachers. We, they used to read the Bible to us when school started in public schools. My school teachers. My church, many, many, many people had already planted seed in my, the seed of the scripture in my life before uh, Brother Bussey did his sermon, preached his sermon, and I came forward and accepted Christ as my personal Savior. Another personal question for you to ask yourself. What do you know personally regarding the Savior of this world? Verses 39 through 42. What do you know personally regarding the Savior of this world? Verse 39 reads, And from that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Because of the word of the woman who testified. What an unlikely witness. What an unlikely witness. When she ran off and leave, left Jesus there at Jacob's well, we didn't hear Jesus say, no, wait, don't go. Don't go tell others about the eternal living water. You're a brand new convert. You can't do that. He didn't say, we didn't hear him say, don't go, you're complicated. You're complicated. You've just slipped out of sin. You've just come out of a really complicated circumstance, a really complicated life. Who's going to listen to you? He didn't say, you haven't earned the right to tell others. You haven't been to our latest apologetics class. You haven't been to our new members class yet. You haven't even been baptized yet. We don't hear Jesus saying, wait, don't go tell your friends and neighbors about Jesus Christ. So she went, she told them, and they came to Jesus. And what happened? Many believed. Isn't that remarkable? What's our hesitation? Many of us have been Christians for years. Many of our lives, while, while they may still have some complication in it, it certainly doesn't have the complication that we had before we became Christians. We all know in our heads, don't we, that we don't have to earn the right to talk about Jesus? The Holy Spirit lives within us. That's our responsibility. That's our role. That's what we 
That's what we do. So many came to Jesus and many believed. And in verse 40, we see that they asked the next question. They asked Jesus to stay with him. They asked him to stay with him. You know, when we're the ambassador, we're the representative for Christ, and we're talking to someone about Jesus, we don't always finish, do we? We don't always finish the conversation. That conversation can go on days. It can go on for months. It can go on for years. So when someone asks us, or even if they don't ask us, if they just hesitate, we need to be ready to stay. We need to be ready to stay and answer their questions and show that, that we care about them. Jesus stayed for two days. He was on an urgent task to Samaria, or to Galilee. He had a ministry that he was, had been called to take care of. But he stayed with Samaritans, unclean, this, this racially different group of people, this theologically different group of people that, that the Jews were told the Jews and, the, and the, the Samaritans had great hostility toward each other. They asked him to stay, and he stayed. You know, we need to ask, don't we? We need to ask. In verse 10 of chapter 4, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, if you had asked him, he's speaking of himself, he would have given you the living water. We need to ask. We need to ask for the living water. We need to ask for him to reveal his truth to us. We need, him to, we need to ask him to stay with us. He wants us to have it. He wants us to know him. And then there's that sense of, of, of personal faith. Personal faith. In, in verse 41, in verse 41 it says, Many more believed because of his word. Many came and believed because of the woman's testimony. But then, when they heard Jesus speak, many more believed. Notice in neither of these verses does it say all of them believed. Jesus would share, he would speak. Hearts would rebel. Hearts would, would, would resist. They would refuse to know him. But many believed. And then many more believed in verse 41. And then in verse 42, they explained to the, to the Samaritan woman, they said, they, they were saying to her, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. I'm not we're not taking your word for it anymore. We all understand, we know, we believe. We have a personal commitment here now. We know that this is the Savior of the world. The Savior. Saving us from what? What is Jesus saving you from? Is he saving you from your, your, your rebellion? A lot of times we want to think he's saving us from our circumstances, for the difficulty, from the pain that we're having. He's saving you from your own rebellion, your disobedience. Your own disbelief, your unbelief, that's what he's saving you from. He's saving, he is the savior of the world, of the cosmos, of the order of the world, of every individual within the world, all those who believe, whoever believes, he is their savior. 
He's your Savior. So what do we need to do this morning? We need to open our eyes. And we need to have a harvest perspective. Not what is that person trying to take from me, but I have something special to give to that person, to share with that person. In verse 430, chapter 438, Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. It's ready now. When we walk out of here this morning, we don't need to, we don't need to sit down and, and look at our calendar and plan. As soon as we walk out the door, the harvest is ready. The first person you speak to, wouldn't that be amazing? If the first person you spoke to, you had the opportunity to talk about Jesus, you had the opportunity to plant the seed of Christ, the the word of Christ, you had the opportunity to, to be part of the harvest, that someone came to know him. That there's a surprise for us that's waiting. There's someone that you haven't met yet. Someone that maybe you haven't, uh, you don't even have their cell phone number, that you're going to just suddenly receive a message from someone uh, at the cell phone, that someone that you can encourage and someone that you can pray for in their, in their situation. What happens along the way of relationships? Why don't we open our eyes and engage with the real world around us? This morning, we're going to partake of, we're going to take communion. And I want us to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 24 through 28. So that we have an understanding of why we are doing this every Sunday. Why do we take communion? When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's stand together as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this unlikely witness, the Samaritan woman who just embodied everything that the Jews and their culture uh, were, were just so repulsed by. We thank you, Father, for this example of Jesus speaking to her, just cutting through all of the obstacles that, that could immediately prevent her from, from believing in him and drinking this eternal water that he was presenting her. We thank you for that example, Father, for her witness of of running directly to her village and telling everyone that she spoke to that Jesus knew everything about her and was able to tell her everything about her, tell her everything about herself. We thank you, Father, for the villagers who ran to Jesus, who came to Jesus and and were able to have their own personal faith in him because of the, the special word that was shared. 
And we thank you, Lord, that your son Jesus stays with us, that he is with us through your Holy Spirit, teaching us and guiding us, leading us and showing us the harvest before us. We pray, Lord, as we examine our hearts, as we examine our lives, that we will be worthy to be able to take this communion, this Lord's Supper this morning. As we pray, as we commune with you, and as we commune with one another, Lord, we want to remember the sacrifice that your son Jesus Christ made with his body, with his blood, for our sake. In your son's name we pray. Amen.